Support for Alabama Aloud comes from Ernest and Hadley Booksellers of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, who strive to provide a unique selection of new, used, and rare books from local, regional, and international sources. Information about online orders at ernestandhadleybooks.com. From Troy Public Radio, this is Alabama Aloud. I'm Don Noble. Alabama Aloud is the only podcast where you can hear Alabama stories read in their entirety. Today, I'll be reading The Seamstress by Suzanne Hudson. Suzanne Hudson, novelist and short story writer, lives at Waterhole Branch near Fairhope. In The Seamstress, she wryly illustrates some of the fault lines in Mobile's social strata. The story, The Seamstress, was first published in Stories from the Blue Moon Cafe, Volume 2, and is used here by permission of the author. Well, all I can say about that, Mrs. Clark Hogan Wilson pronounced, with the bearing of a robed, gaveled judge, and even more of the authority is that Sarah Jo Cooper never had any inkling about how to keep herself a cut above the riffraff. Mrs. Wilson, Francie, to her most bosom of friends, lifted a dimpled little hand to brush a puff of parlor-dyed curls back from her forehead, revealing grooved wrinkles born of brow knitting and, on a typical day, glaring as she sulked. Today, however, she was not sulking riding instead the crest of an exhilarating wave of self-importance while she engaged in the gossip that nourished her. She stood on a four-by-four raised platform, feeling that much higher than her handmaidens, while a seamstress altered the ball gown she was to wear a week from Friday. She had just been regaled with the tale of Sarah Jo Cooper, who had left her husband of thirty-two years to ride off into the sunset with the drywall hanger, who was renovating the antebellum home said husband had bought for her only a month prior. "'Once trash, always trash,' Mrs. Wilson said. "'I believe I pointed that out to you at Mitzi Stanton's last dinner party, if you'll recall. Do you recall that? Do you?' "'I most certainly do,' her most recent best friend Camilla Mrs. James Cunningham Dixon replied, as the seamstress worked at pinning Mrs. Wilson's hem. The seamstress, Celeste, had observed this cannibalistic friendship over the previous weeks of fittings and alterations as she constructed Mrs. Wilson's Mardi Gras gown. She had noted that Mrs. Dixon was tenacious about doing her duty as a hanger-on, bearing platters of giddy gossip for her mentor to consume. Gifted with an encyclopedic knowledge of maiden names and double-first cousins, Mrs. Dixon could sniff out vague ancestral connections to any scandal and find genealogical secrets that would horrify the sensibility of a St. Louis streetwalker. She had even prodded Celeste, a deliberately private soul, for personal information, for a family history from which to gain a point of reference. She had been delighted when she discovered that Celeste had grown up with her own maternal third cousin, Martha Sams, in Brannan, Mississippi, south and west of Columbus, immediately seeing that cousin Martha could offer the lowdown on Celeste. In addition to her role as troubadour of troubles, 
purveyor of peccadilloes. Mrs. Dixon also undertook her task of flatterer-in-chief to Mrs. Wilson with an effusive fervor. "'You are an excellent judge of character, Francie. It's pure power of perception. You simply know people through and through, and I do recall that you pointed that out to me about Sarah Jo Cooper. Saw right clear through her. I swear you don't miss a beat,' she gushed. Mrs. Wilson picked a piece of lint from the velvet skirt of her gown and flicked it into the air. It dipped and danced like dwarfed confetti. "'Of course you also recall that it was at Mitzi's tacky little dinner party,' she said. "'Do you recall that embarrassing nightmare of a party?' "'Absolutely do,' Mrs. Dixon said. "'It was right there at that selfsame party that you pointed out to me about Sarah Joe's flawed character.' You pointed out to me how cozy she was with the help, how she had had her head leaned into that college boy bartender who... The one in the tiki hut, Mrs. Wilson said. Do you recall that tacky little tiki hut Mitzi had set up by the pool as an island bar? Well, of course. How could I not? It was the one with the young college boy bartending in it. A medical student, I think. It was a Hawaiian luau's theme, you see, Celeste. A luau is a Hawaiian feast. Did you know? Mrs. Wilson spoke down to the woman at her feet. All of our parties, well, the very best ones anyway, they all have a theme. You know, the creation of a tableau, a setting, a dramatic flair. My, how elegant. Celeste, the seamstress, pulled another straight pin from her wrist cushion, working with the gold net material bunched at Mrs. Wilson's waist, draped down around the rich, deep purple velvet gown, the tips of her nimble fingers faintly aware of the little sausage-like rolls of fatty flesh beneath the clingy fabric. Now, Mrs. Wilson, it's important that you bring those shoes you plan to wear with this when you come for your next fitting. This netting is very tricky to hem, and... Yes, 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 Mrs. Wilson said in her hurried, impatient voice. But as I was saying just now, the theme is what makes the party if you have the flair to make it work. Believe you me, there is nothing more pitiful than a flopped theme. Well, you wouldn't know about that, Francie, Mrs. Dixon said, rummaging through an oversized handbag. I'm telling you, Celeste, there is nothing like one of Francie's parties. They are the best, bar none. You should get to see one before you die, my hand to God. Do you want a lifesaver? She held out the roll of candy, its foil wrapper peeled and hanging like tossed serpentine. No, thank you, Celeste said. The gold netting was stiff and unwieldy next to the supple purple velvet. Would you lift your arm, please? Mrs. Wilson complied, sending the sprung flesh on the underside of her arm into a series of jiggles. Like last August, I had an all-black party last August. Not black people, you know, but a black decor, like a wake or a funeral, for Hoagie's 50th birthday party. And he's way older than me, so don't you even think it. Do you recall that party, Camilla? It was only the be-all, end-all of all birthday parties, Camilla gushed. Celeste pulled another straight pin from the red satin wrist cushion. Her own husband had not seen 50, had died instead at 28, leaving her with four small children, a singer sewing machine, and an avalanche of debt, estranged from the family that could have helped her. 
and the all-black party was such a hit that on New Year's I had an all-white party, just like those jet-setter folks do. You know, everything white. White food, like sour cream and cream cheese dips and vanilla cakes and this divine, frothy, white wine punch. Oh, and white flowers. You know, floating camellias and such. And white candles, white everything. It was nothing short of fabulous, Celeste, Mrs. Dixon, ever the sycophant, effused. Francie throws the best parties of anyone in our circle, and you don't even get into our circle unless you know how to throw a grand party. Well, except for Missy Stanton, I guess. Our circle? Mrs. Wilson lifted one eyebrow with arch indictment and let it soak in for a moment. Then she smiled with forced benevolence. At any rate, it is no small feat to be a successful hostess, I am here to tell you. It takes quite a lot of thought and creativity. You can't believe all the little details you have to be mindful of. Just one tiny thing can cause a huge flop. My, Celeste said again. Right down to the guests, Mrs. Wilson went on. You have to take care to have a complimentary mix of temperaments and a code of dress. Of course, the guests at my white party were all required to wear white so as not to disturb the theme. You have to be very specific on what to wear. Some people just don't have any finesse. Lord, my arm is tired. Can't I put it down? Yes, ma'am. Celeste drew back and studied the netting she was attempting to drape as per instructions from Mrs. Wilson who continued her pontification on the art of hostessing a successful party. If just one guest breaks the dress code, well, it simply sticks out like a sore thumb. It ruins the larger picture. The canvas, if you will. Anyway, I imagine I have just about done it all, party theme-wise. But whenever we think she's outdone herself, she comes up with a brand new twist, it's a flare, that's all. It's an inborn talent. Mrs. Dixon took her compact out of her purse and powdered down her nose. I declare, I shine like a lighthouse beacon, and I don't have the first idea how to have my hair done for the ball. She scrutinized the stiffly layered flaps of frosty blonde, turning her head at sharp angles. Good night alive. These highlights are all wrong. Mrs. Dixon was in the process of moving from a social stratum just beneath that of Mrs. Wilson and into the one Mrs. Wilson presided over, so well-done highlights were of the utmost importance. Mrs. Wilson herself was hoping to be elected president of her Mardi Gras society the next time around, poised to launch up to the next social level, the one that every great once in a while pierced the true aristocracy of coastal Alabama. Mrs. Dixon snapped the compact shut. I do know one thing, though. Even a magnificent Mardi Gras ball hasn't got much on one of Francie's parties. Go on, Francie, and try to tell Celeste all the themes you've done just this past year, Mrs. Dixon urged. Well, let's see, Mrs. Wilson said. I've done a Roaring Twenties party and a Screen Siren. That's where you come as a movie star. Hoagie and I were Liz and Dick. Anyway, a screen siren party, a beach blanket bingo party over the bay, a Monaco casino party at the country club. Gosh, it must be half a dozen. And I'm here to tell the both of you that a Hawaiian luau with a tiki hut bar, 
a bunch of plastic lays, and Don Ho ukulele music comes a dime a dozen. Isn't that the gospel, Mrs. Dixon chimed in. It's practically one of the commandments. Thou shalt not throw a Hawaiian luau. But then, Mitzi Stanton has nothing near your sense of style, Francie. On top of that, she's a Jew. I don't think they even believe in the Ten Commandments, do they? Yes, the seamstress said. They do. Anyway, that was just fluff about the commandments, Mrs. Dixon said. My main point was about Francie having oodles of style and Mitzi having not one blessed drop. Well, at the risk of seeming big-headed, I certainly won't contradict that, Mrs. Wilson said. And that is why I was elected parliamentarian and historian of the Merrymakers over Mitzi Stanton. The only reason we let her join in the first place was because her husband is Methodist and the premier auto salesman in Mobile. A Jew and Mardi Gras is oil and water, so she had no business being an officer. The gall. But after that tacky little luau of hers, she might as well have just put up a sign on wheels out front of her house saying, Mitzi Stanton has no flair whatsoever. There was no way she could have avoided me beating her in that election. It was a landslide, Celeste, Mrs. Dixon said to the seamstress. It was practically a unanimous mandate. Goodness. Celeste walked a slow circle around Mrs. Wilson, studying the fit of the sequined bodice. Mardi Gras sparkles of purple and gold winked promises from the roly-poly pudge of Mrs. Clark Hogan Wilson. Oh, absolutely a landslide, Mrs. Wilson reiterated, and an honor, of course. A position of leadership, which is where you ought to be if you have flair and a keen sense of style. I mean, the business of the merrymakers is to have party after party, leading up to the big party during Mardi Gras, of course. It takes a keen sense of style. Well, honey, that is you. That is just you all over, Mrs. Dixon cooed, retrieving an emery board from the handbag and commencing to sand the edges of her fingernails. I swear, my nails look like a scrubwoman's. The scritch of the emery board punctuated a short silence before Mrs. Dixon remembered to refocus on her friend. Like I say, Francie, style is simply your calling card. You could have stepped right out of Cosmopolitan or Vogue. She craned her neck to see the seamstress, who again worked on the netting of Mrs. Wilson's back. I'm sure you know, Celeste, that Mrs. Wilson will be showcased at the tableau, which means, of course, that your dressmaking skills will be showcased. It's exciting, all right, Celeste said. She had been hearing for months about how Mrs. Wilson would be presented as an officer of her Mardi Gras society at a grand processional, or tableau, before the ball. It was a huge event, the penultimate pinnacle of Mrs. Wilson's social history as one who jockeyed for every movement upward she could garner. I will be proud to have you model my work. Oh, but Celeste, sweetie, it's as much how you wear a dress as how it's made. Mrs. Wilson said. More even. Let's face it, anybody and their sister can make a dress. I mean, the real flair is in the wearing of it, don't you think? Yes, of course. Celeste, practiced in the art of appearing unruffled by insensitivity, began unpinning and repinning the gold netting around the back of the dress. 
She had tried to tell Mrs. Wilson that the netting would clash with the texture of velvet, and had urged her to pick a grainy satin for the skirt of her gown, but Mrs. Wilson would have none of it. Mrs. Wilson had been looking for a specific effect, a Marie Antoinette effect, she had said, all swooped out on the sides, you know, but at a part hanging down the back, almost a train, you know, a French queen for the Mardi Gras ball, la bon temps. Mrs. Wilson had been coming to her dressmaking parlor for over twenty years, as had an entire parade of ladies and little girls carrying mounds of satin, chantilly lace, dotted Swiss, poids de soie, crepe, velveteen, fabrics that cocooned their social stations in life like spun silk. She threaded embroidery into fine linen christening gowns, stitched the smocking around toddlers' dresses, sewed red and black velvet cuffs onto tartan plaid Christmas dresses, secured pastel netting over bridesmaids' skirts, and attached mother-of-pearl beads and Irish lace onto wedding gowns. She ran her tape measure around the busts, waists, and hips of the women, down the lengths of their backs, in intimacy ripe with irony. She aided well-dressed ladies in elaborate deceptions, drawing and cutting patterns for designer copies, which was the most lucrative part of the business, and she deposited the women's folded bills and personal checks into her own burgeoning bank account. The stock market investments she made had doubled, tripled, then quadrupled the fees provided by the ladies who commanded her services. In recent years she had begun to look forward to a very comfortable early retirement. Now, in the midst of her forties, she was finally winding down, putting the last of her children through college, coming upon her own time in life. And she had taken more abuse than she would ever have predicted when she ran away from home at the age of seventeen, from wealthy parents in the Mississippi Black Belt, just to be with the man who loved her briefly and very well indeed, before he died. A couple of her clients were not just from old, but very old money, old mobile aristocrats who would never deign to boast as Mrs. Wilson did, but who held on to a slick, sterling, silver barrier of aloofness, a much more subtle, polite kind of reminder that Celeste's purpose in life was to be at their beck and call, which often meant kneeling at their feet. Unlike the social unfoldings of Mrs. Wilson's mystic order of mirthful merrymakers, their Mardi Gras functions were written up in vast detail in the Mobile Press Register. Their king and queen were treated like the blue-blood royalty they were born to be, their expensive crowns bought and paid for by money seeded by robber barons, then aged in timber, shipping, and double deals. Celeste hated them, save for one or two, with a fierce purity. She hated the low esteem in which she was held by them, and, having refused her own inheritance, having put it aside for her grandchildren, she hated the inherited currency her customers bestowed upon her after she worked on the hems of their garments. Bowed there, at their feet, like a penitent parishioner seeking absolution, but she hated Mrs. Wilson and her ilk a million times more, hated their hungry grasps 
at that higher station in life she had shunned. Their shallow little battles, the meager stakes they raised above their means. Mrs. Clark Hogan Wilson epitomized it all, and Celeste had watched her for over two decades, coming up a notch or two here, down one notch there, her long, futile climb tearing at little potential for a soul had ever rested in her heart in the first place. Mrs. Clark Hogan Wilson talked about the local aristocrats, the Fillinghams, Dolans, McCulloughs, as if they were more than passing acquaintances of hers. Who will be the next queen of carnival, she would ask. Of course, we knew Maxine Dolan would have it this year. But next year there's going to be a huge battle between Lexus Dolan and that Mary McCullough. Their daddies are likely to come to blows. Isn't it delicious? Celeste thought this talk of hers analogous to those pathetic women who discussed TV soap opera characters as they would friends or family members, filling their empty lives with the escapades and tribulations of the fictional characters portrayed by third-rate stars. Mr. Clark Hogan Wilson was a merchant who had made it to the top of the floor-covering market in town, complete with television commercials on the local stations. Let Hoagie make your home homey, the jingle went, bringing in plenty of money, though never enough in Mrs. Wilson's eyes, to erase his lack of a college education. As she aged, she shaded the truth about her husband by degree, until he became an honorary Kappa Sigma at the university, and an honorary member of the Wolf Landing Hunting Club, and an influential player in city politics. No one seemed willing to call her on her lies. Celeste, as always, chose to keep her stoic, perfected silence and her fruitful livelihood for the sake of her children. Sometimes, though, she felt as if she were treading silent black waters, gasping for air, grappling for a lifeboat captained by Mrs. Wilson, whose history was the antithesis of her own principled past, an impostor of a captain who all the while pushed down on her, shoving her head under the waves, beating her back from the vessel with an oar. "'It will be nothing short of magnificence, Celeste,' Mrs. Dixon was saying. "'What is that?' Celeste silently cursed the stiff netting. "'The tableau, of course, the tableau!' Mrs. Dixon squirmed and giggled like an antsy kindergartner. "'I know it's supposed to be very top secret and all, Francie, and I know it's going to be my first time as a guest at the Mystic Merrymaker's Ball, but can't I please tell Celeste just a little, just a little about the tableau?' Celeste pulled another pin from the shiny red satin wrist cushion. Mrs. Wilson sighed. Oh, all right. But Celeste had better not go blabbing our secrets to just anybody, because not just anybody gets to come to our ball. Celeste won't tell, will you, Celeste? No, the seamstress said. All right, then. She set her handbag on the floor and sat up very straight. First of all, there will be the most elaborate costumes you can imagine. All 240 members will be in the processional. Their husbands will be seated along the edges of the arena, wearing dignified tuxedos, of course, and the members will wear these gorgeous costumes. But naturally, you know they are gorgeous, because you made lots of them yourself. Yes, I did, said the seamstress. Anyway, 
The theme this year is Let the Good Times Roll All Around the World. So each group of 10 or 12 ladies will be dressed in costumes native to a particular country. And they'll do a dance to some taped music related to that country, you know. And this will go on and on and on until the big moment. Celeste fingered a sequin that had snagged loose from the bodice. I'll have to fix this, she murmured. The big moment is when they introduce the five officers one by one, and these spotlights follow them down from the stage and across the arena, and they do a Mardi Gras dance to some New Orleans jazz, and the president introduces the queen, and the queen commands the ball to begin, and oh, I am so excited. Goodness, Camilla, get a Xanax out of my purse and calm yourself, Mrs. Wilson said. But I admit it will be a thrill to be followed across an arena by spotlights while hundreds of people seated in the audience watch, kind of like being Miss America, and to think it might have been that Jewish Mitzi Stanton instead of me, if not for that tacky Hawaiian luau she threw. Goodness, I'm tired of standing on this step stool. You can get dressed now, Celeste said. I think I see what needs to be done. Mrs. Dixon babbled on and on about the tableau while Mrs. Wilson changed clothes. I mean, I've been to balls before, and they were nice. But this is the mystic order of mirthful merrymakers. They are known to have the best ball, besides the top two societies, of course, and you have to practically marry into those, you know. Celeste almost said, Yes, I know about marrying into even more money, because that is what my father expected, only I chose not to take my father's fortune and double it, by merging assets with another family. I did not prostitute myself to a man I did not love. She often wanted to spit the truth at them, tell them what a sham it all was, their desperate bid for upward mobility. When you marry for money, you earn every penny, her husband used to say, and Celeste knew that these women could have only reached their desired level by marrying into it, and they had certainly not done that. Two, marrying up would have been a long shot at best for women like them, shallow and unbeautiful as they were. No, the heart-pine core of aristocracy they lusted after was a closed society, and they would never be allowed into the club. Not that club, the one in which she had been reared. Never that ultimate club. Mrs. Dixon caught Celeste's gaze, pointed at a scrap of the gold netting on the floor, and mouthed the words, enough of a whisper that Celeste could hear her. That just does not go, she whispered, shaking her head wide-eyed. Celeste shrugged. Remember to bring your shoes to the next fitting, Celeste said again, when Mrs. Wilson emerged from the hallway that served as a makeshift dressing room. Yes, I know, I don't have to be told a thing forty times, Mrs. Wilson huffed, rolling her eyes at her friend. Oh, Celeste, Mrs. Dixon said, my cousin Martha is coming down from Brannan to visit this weekend. I'll tell her hello for you. Yes, do that, the seamstress said. And I warn you, Miss Mysterious, my cousin Martha will give me the scoop on you and yours. So if you have some big old juicy secrets, well, look out. I certainly will, 
the seamstress said. Goodness. I know what, Francie. You must do the dance, Mrs. Dixon said. Before we go, you must do the dance for Celeste. Yes, our little Cinderella. Our poor little Cinderella, who needs a fairy godmother to transform her for the ball, Mrs. Wilson said. Celeste gathered the cast-off gown into her arms, gold netting stiff and scratchy. What sort of dance? The Mardi Gras dance, you know the one, like this. Mrs. Wilson began to strut, the familiar Mardi Gras strut so common on the streets of New Orleans and Mobile. Da-da-da, she sang, dipping and swaying, da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da, and here comes the good part. She did a half-turn and broke into a backward strut while Mrs. Dixon joined her in the song, and they both danced their way out the front door, laughing a rowdy chorus of anticipation, while the seamstress pressed the crisp gold netting to her cheek and contemplated their reverie. When Mrs. Wilson returned the following week for her final fitting, gold shoes in hand, she was sans her usual appendage, the fawning Mrs. Dixon. She was also oddly quiet. The sulk lines in her forehead grooved in a fixed petulance as she stood on the small platform. Celeste repinned the hem and double-checked each seam, the zipper, the hook and eye, the malignant gold netting all webbed out like a cancer around the skirt. The room was a jumble of sparkling gold, yellow, green, purple, fluffs of flounces, bolts of beaded and brocade fabrics for the carnival season. Last-minute gowns lay about in various stages of glitter, some gaudily playful with festive flashes of rhinestones, others like garish Las Vegas neon, ready to play out to a night all boozy and sour with stomach-turning dances and sloppy, slathered-on kisses from strangers. "'You don't wear your gown on the float, do you?' Celeste asked. "'It could be a problem getting—' "'Well, of course not,' Mrs. Wilson snapped, breaking her silence in two. "'Don't you know anything?' We have to wear masks and costumes that go with the theme of the float. My God, why would you even have a float if you weren't going to have costumes? Just why? Celeste tugged at the sequined shoulder strap. Mrs. Wilson's flaccid skin pooched around it. More flesh spilled in a bratwurst-like bulge over the top of the scoop-necked back. This seems fine, the seamstress said. I'll tell you what seems, Mrs. Wilson snapped again. It seems to me that you often ignore what I say. It seems to me that you often behave rudely. Like now, you do not show one bit of interest in the workings of the float. I never cared much for Mardi Gras parades. I only went when my children were small. Celeste made gentle rearrangements in the gold netting that swept around the sides of the velvet skirt. And I admit that I don't care much for the parades, either, so don't think you're anything special, Mrs. Wilson said. Her voice had an angry, tense tone that Celeste had not heard before. I don't want to be gobbled up in those hordes of people on the sidewalk, that's for sure. The unwashed masses, she shuddered. I'm telling you, you get a bird's-eye view of the dregs of Mobile from high up on a float. Celeste uttered her favorite of her standard remarks. Goodness! 
You can't tell me you wouldn't like to be a float rider. You can't tell me you wouldn't like folks to be yelling to you for beads or moon pies. It's like being a queen. It's like being Cleopatra coming down the Nile on a gilded barge. I don't understand anybody that wouldn't like that. Celeste moved to the other side of Mrs. Wilson's skirt, to the other poof of gold. No, I don't understand it one little bit, Mrs. Wilson went on. Oh, I'm sure plenty of folks would say they didn't want to be a float rider. But those are the ones that are so jealous they wouldn't ever admit how much deep down they want to take your place. But I can't for the life of me understand somebody that gets to be a float rider and then walks away from it like it's nothing, like it's not worth a damn thing. Do you understand somebody like that? Well, I suppose it's somebody like that is just mean or crazy or stupid is what I think. Somebody like that maybe has brain cancer or some kind of schizophrenia to walk away from what counts. Celeste knelt at Mrs. Wilson's back, checking the hem of the faux train, seeing how it lined up with the glittering three-inch heels she wore. It's a disgrace, is what? Mrs. Wilson huffed and blew like a spooked pony. It makes me want to spit to high heaven. Celeste stood. I'll send this over to Lawson's dry cleaning to have it pressed for you. As soon as I get it hemmed, you can pick it up there on Thursday. You do that, Mrs. Wilson said in a voice thick with sarcasm. She stepped down, wobbling on her heels. Celeste caught her elbow, but the other woman jerked it away and stomped off to the hallway dressing room. I guess you see that Camilla Dixon, my little pilot fish, is no longer at my side, Mrs. Wilson, still boiling, shouted from the hallway. She's like to have a breakdown, too, because I have officially uninvited her to the Merrymaker's Ball. As an officer, I'm allowed to do that, you see. Oh? Some people just don't know when to shut up. Some people say more than anybody wants to know. That's all. Yes, they do, the seamstress said. But not you. No, never you. You don't do a damn thing to let on what cards you've been dealt, do you? You keep your trump hand right up against your chest, don't you? Celeste smiled. I, I don't play cards. Mrs. Wilson burst through the door, flushed and trembling. She flung the dress across the room. See that you get this finished right away, she commanded. Of course, the seamstress said. Mrs. Wilson snatched several bills from her purse. I have your money. And, oh, here's something else. She dug down into her handbag, coming out with a handful of throws. Since you won't be at the parade, she said, and threw beads, bills, doubloons, and a lone moon pie across the room, the dinging and clattering of the cheap trinkets like a percussive curse against the hardwood floor. Celeste watched her press her chubby frame through the front door, where she turned and scowled her best, deepest wrinkled sneer at the seamstress. Camilla was right about one thing, though. Really? Yes, really. She was right about how you ought to experience at least one of my parties. Maybe you could serve hors d'oeuvre for me sometime, or pop out of a cake, or something equally cheap, like what you have chosen in life. Oh, I don't know, Celeste said. I'm really only good at sewing. 
That I am quite good at. But you might consider asking my son, Hollis. He does a little private bartending to help with college expenses. Is that so? Well, I'm sure I'm honored that you chose to reveal something about your personal life to little old me. A son, and in college, no less. Just finishing medical school, Celeste said. But he won't be available much longer. He'll be doing his internship, and he's engaged, too. A very nice girl, very down-to-earth, Mary McCullough. For a split second, it seemed to Celeste that Mrs. Wilson's sneer would be wiped away by utter shock. But it held steady, set there in the grooves of her face, her eyes ripe with pure hatred. "'You go to your choosing and rot like a trashy beggar in hell,' Mrs. Wilson said, slamming the door hard enough to rattle window panes in the adjoining room. Celeste retrieved the throws and the cash, then picked up the mangled purple velvet with its clashing Marie Antoinette gold netting. She walked over to her time-worn Singer sewing machine, spread the skirt back and out, and then set to work on the hem. The stabbing and clicketing of the piston-borne needle sealing her resolve. The Mardi Gras season came to a drunken climax on Fat Tuesday and faded into the confessions of a hungover Ash Wednesday, and the ladies who came into Celeste's place of business were abuzz with the tales of intrigue, subterfuge, strife, and backbiting that so often accompanies large-scale social gatherings. But by far the most buzzed-about tale was that of the bizarre and shocking occurrences at the mystic order of mirthful merrymakers' events. All along the parade route, it was told, Mrs. Clark Hogan Wilson would go missing for an inordinate while, only to be found in the porta-potty, hidden in the bowels of the float, miserably shoveling moon pie after moon pie into her jowly little face, eyes glazed over in a sugary, chocolate-induced haze. She would be brought up to her high place at the top of the float, a facsimile of a pink matterhorn with purple clouds towering above the crush of the crowd, above the minions who were corralled back like sheep by grilled metal barricades. She would throw a few handfuls from a large box hidden behind a cliff on the matterhorn, then, when no one was noticing, would make her way again to the porta potty, another stash of chocolate moon pies hidden deep in her bra, and in the folds of her emerald-green satin Swiss Alps costume. Mrs. Wilson's mood picked up later, most agreed, as the members of the mystic order of mirthful merrymakers retired to the Civic Center to prepare for their tableau. Everyone agreed it was a beautiful tableau this year, maybe even better than any society in town. The china dolls, flamenco dancers, hula girls, belly dancers, Group after group, they waltzed, twirled, and waddled their way across the arena to the applause of the crowd, the ceremonial flash and swoop of spotlights, the twinkling of sequins on satin. Then the arena fell silent as the officers, in various states of elegance and preeminence, took the stage. Mrs. Wilson was announced first, illuminated by three white lights that tossed the glitter of her sequined bodice out to the audience as she began her walk down the stairs to the Mardi Gras song. 
The three spotlights brushed her round frame, the deep purple velvet skirt netted over by gold. When she reached the arena floor, she broke into the traditional strut while the onlookers clapped hands to the rhythm. And it was told all over town what happened when she turned to execute her signature flare, her backward strut. It seemed, they said, to happen in slow motion, that the heel of one gold shoe caught in the netting, and in that instant all that followed became inevitable. Her arms flailed. The crowd sucked in a collective gale of a gasp. The other foot stepped back, even farther into the netting, pulling the first shoe completely off and pulling her the rest of the way down. She tumbled to her ample buttocks with a padded thud, sitting in the middle of the arena floor, legs outspread, all dignity seared away. Even worse, the jolting force of her landing, it seemed, had liberated one lone moon pie from the brazier prison where it had resided since her chocolate binge on the merrymaker's float. The chocolate-covered disc of cake and marshmallow hit the floor beside her, cellophane glinting as it spun in the Miss America spotlight. And it did a twirling little dance of its own before coming to a rest on the waxed floor of the arena next to her cast-off shoe. From the hushed audience there came a twitter or two, but these were hurriedly shushed by others, who then twittered a bit themselves. A long forever of stunned silence passed before a couple of the tuxedoed men, not her husband, who was frozen with embarrassed horror, leapt to their feet to help her up. One of them gallantly and discreetly pocketed the moon pie in an effort to restore a fraction of dignity to the occasion. Then, like an awkward Prince Charming, he bent down to hold the sparkly gold shoe as she wiggled and worked her plump foot into it. Of course, the music swelled again, and the processional went on. The other officers were introduced, and the president introduced the queen, and the queen commanded that the ball begin. And, after crying on the shoulders of her most bosom of friends, Mrs. Clark Hogan Wilson danced all evening with a smile fixed to her face, fixed like the grin of a stalked and trophied animal from a taxidermy establishment, attempting to make light of the ruination of her vertical advancement. Efforts to put a gag order into effect for the members of the mystic order of mirthful merrymakers were futile and the events of that evening were carried from function to function by wagging tongues, received with doubled-over laughter, and passed on. The story was unstoppable, and it grew exponentially on its inevitable course of becoming a Mardi Gras legend. The moon pie, too, became an icon, was auctioned off at charity events, passed from Mardi Gras society to Mardi Gras society and beyond along with the tale of Mrs. Clark Hogan Wilson. And the tale was told again and again, at bridge clubs and teas, in nail salons, beauty parlors and shops. It was told at the country clubs of the nearly elite, and at the exclusive clubs of the most elite. And it was told in the fitting room of the seamstress, Celeste, who knelt at the feet of the ladies, 
working the fine fabrics of their choosing. It was told over and over, while the seamstress, she with the most vindicated of hearts, turned bland bolts of material into crisp summer blouses edged in navy blue piping and full cinch-waisted skirts swirling the colors of stained-glass windows between her practiced and nimble fingers. The story, The Seamstress, was first published in Stories from the Blue Moon Cafe, Volume 2, and is used here by permission of the author. We hope you don't keep Alabama Aloud all to yourself. Subscribe to our podcast and share it with a friend. Better yet, write us a review in the iTunes store. It helps other people find the podcast. Also, give us a shout out on social media. Alabama Aloud is a production of Troy Public Radio and is produced by Austin Toy and Kyle Gassett. Special thanks to Matt Clower, Buddy Johnson, and Michelle Mowry. So, until next time, when you'll hear more of Alabama Read Aloud, I'm Don Noble. Thanks for listening. <laughs>